Once in a while as congregation, you, you must wonder why we sing a certain psalm or hymn. The line that really speaks in this psalm to our text is, Kiss the Son, lest he in fury scorn you. It's a prominent message in our, our passage. You don't take Jesus lightly. You, you need to have an intimate relationship with him. So we'll turn now to our text and read that together. Mark 2, the verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, What does this man, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Beloved, <clears throat> beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in Mark 2, we read the story of Jesus healing the paralytic, the paralyzed man. For our, our little children who might not know exactly what a paralytic is, it's someone who can't walk and, and maybe can't use his arms either. It's a horrible condition. And it's so beautiful that Jesus Christ healed him so he could get up, he could walk and do the normal things that a, a young man likes to do. Now, this is really early in Jesus' ministry, but it's not his first miracle. We read together in Mark 1 uh, how Jesus cured a man who had an evil spirit. That's a demon. And also, when he got to Simon Peter's house, he healed his mother-in-law from a fever. And then we read in Mark 1, the verses 33 and 34, and the whole city, that's the city of Capernaum, was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And that's just the beginning. Soon, Jesus would appoint 12 disciples also to preach and heal and drive out demons. Then a little later, we read in Luke 10, he appointed 72 more disciples 
and gave them the express mandate to preach, to heal, to drive out demons. You can imagine that by the end of three years in his ministry, there was hardly a sick person left in the land. I mean, when you, when you, when you see dead people being raised, when you see demons being driven out, people getting their sight back, able to walk, why wouldn't you bring your son or daughter or your husband or wife or grandpa to Jesus or the disciples to be healed? Everybody was getting healed. It was an amazing, magical time. It was like Eden restored its paradise again. It's the way that God created the world to be. And yet it was no paradise, brothers and sisters. This was no Eden because a darkness and an evil lurked in the land. It lurked in every human heart. Every man, every woman, every child in Israel was a sinner. Just as we are sinners today. And you know what happens to sinners? Sinners cannot have a relationship with God. We read that many times in scripture. For instance, Isaiah 59 but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So with all his preaching and healing, Jesus was doing amazing things there in the promised land. But it was far, far from perfection because everyone was still a sinner. And if you're a sinner, you got nothing at all. Even if you have health, if you're a sinner, you don't have a relationship with God. You don't have eternity with him. And that's why it's not enough that Jesus and his disciples did all this beautiful healing. Jesus had to address human beings' greatest ailment, greatest affliction, greatest disease, and that is sin. Jesus has to take away our sins and restore us as children of God, only then does life matter and health matter. And that will come because if your sins are washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ, you have the promise of, of Revelation 21 that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Perfect healing awaits God's children. Perfect healing awaits those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what we will look at this morning. And we do that just, just after the baptism of, of Legend Newman. And as we read that form, it must have struck you. The emphasis that Jesus washes away our sins. And Jesus gives us life and hope and life eternal. We summarize our text in this way. The Lord Jesus grants the greatest possible healing to the paralytic. And we'll see that he preaches the word, he forgives sin, and he heals the paralytic. We see that in our text that the Lord Jesus is returning to Capernaum after an exhaustive trip throughout all of Galilee where he preached and he healed and he drove out demons. And we read in our text that he came home. It's probably the home of Simon Peter. This is where Jesus stayed in Capernaum. This was home for him. And it didn't take long 
The whole town, the whole city turned out to see him. He was becoming famous. Type of, type of preaching he did, preaching with authority, miracles, casting out demons. Of course they came to him. And, and we read that there was no more room, not even at the door. Now, admittedly, houses were small in those days. Some of us have bigger living rooms and family rooms than, than their houses. So it didn't take long. And the house was packed. and People spilled out onto the street. But thankfully, they could all hear Jesus. And that's important because we read that Jesus was preaching the word to them. That's the gospel. He was delivering a sermon. And when we consider that this is the Son of God who's become man, a perfect man, I would like to have a copy of that sermon. I'm sure you do too. But you know what, brothers and sisters? You do have a copy if you open your Bible. Back in Mark 1, when Jesus started his ministry and he first opened his mouth, we read in Mark 1, verse 15, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's the whole gospel in a nutshell. Jesus says, now that I'm here, the kingdom of God is here as well. I bring it here. And you see that, like, I'm crushing Satan. I'm driving out demons. And I'm overcoming every kind of, of ailment. Jesus Christ is saying, the kingdom of God is here. And it is here in my person. It's because of me. When I wash you in my blood and renew you by my Holy Spirit, you become a citizen of that kingdom. And your life becomes a life of loving God and loving your neighbor. You know, by this time, the Lord Jesus Christ has probably done more teaching. Could very well be that he's already delivered his Sermon on the Mount. We read about that in Matthew 5 through 7. And there he shows what a citizen of the kingdom of, of God can look like and, and be like. He says, blessed are the meek. That's a citizen of the kingdom, a meek person. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And then he went on, start teaching about things that the scribes and Pharisees didn't seem to have a clue about. He says, you take the commandment, don't commit adultery. I tell you, you look at a woman with lust in your heart. That's adultery. There's a commandment that says, don't murder. But I tell you, you call your brother an idiot and refuse to be reconciled to him. You are a murderer. Jesus preached the gospel and unveiled the law, not in a shallow, superficial way, but that touches your heart. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? What are you longing for? He touched on those things and showed how it had to be holy and show love for God and love for the neighbor. And that's why by the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't take that wide road that leads to destruction, but take the narrow road that leads to eternal life. That was a clear call saying, you need me. I'm your Lord. I'm your Savior. Come to me and don't go anywhere else and I will give you life. I'll give you everything you need for body and soul and life and death. Jesus needs to be our all in all 
or we have nothing at all. So this is what Jesus was preaching to the people as they gathered around him there in Capernaum. I'm not sure what you're thinking right now, but you might be thinking very positively about that crowd that had gathered around Jesus. I mean, we're nice people, and we tend to think other people are nice too. And we even read on several occasions that the people were amazed at Jesus, especially his preaching. They were amazed at his preaching. But you know, Mark never, ever, he not once says that the people repented and believed in Jesus Christ, which is the exact message that Jesus started his ministry with. They listened. They were amazed. They, they liked it. But there was a failure to step forward and to commit. They didn't launch. They didn't launch from their, from their darkness. Indeed, we, we see that more and more they began to turn away from him. See that in, in like John 6, where Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You need to eat my flesh. You need to drink my blood to live, to be saved, to, to have life. And clearly, he spelled it out. He says that means you've you got to believe in me. To, to eat my flesh, drink my blood means you really got to take hold of me. You need me. But what do we read in John 6? The people began to quarrel and dispute. And then in verse 66, verse 66, we read, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked after him. This crowd was the 5,000 he had just miraculously fed. They walked away from him. And then Jesus turns to his 12 and says, Do you want to go as well? So people were impressed with Jesus, especially at first but more and more, they turned away from him. They did not commit, and it didn't take them long to scream out, crucify him, crucify him. Now, in contrast to all those people standing there failing to commit, we have the plucky squad of four carrying their paralytic friend to go to Jesus. And what's noteworthy is that, that we read in in verse 5, that Jesus saw their faith. They were believers. And they didn't stand idly on the sidewalk, you know, kind of wondering what's going to happen. Can't get through the door? Go through the roof. Go to the roof. In those days, roofs were flat. It was stairway on the outside. You'd go on the roof. People would sit there in the evening, have supper, cool off. But they were built in a very robust way. You had massive beams and then a crisscross of branches and mud. Getting through that is a nightmare. But they started to tear an opening. It had to be big enough that a whole cot would fit through it. And Jesus is downstairs preaching. He's got dust in his hair. Twigs are falling on his, in his beard. There's this massive ripping and straining and People going, oh, oh, just hurt myself, you know. Jesus goes on preaching. People go on listening. And finally, they have ripped a hole in the roof. Poor homeowner, but bigger things are at stake here. And they lower the cot with the paralytic before Jesus. Now, this scenario, this, 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 um, this part of Scripture presents us with a, a question. 
Who am I more like? Who am I like on a typical Sunday when I'm sitting here as a member of the congregation, listening to the preaching? Am I like the crowd? I'm interested. I'm fascinated. Fairly happy to be here. But I might not be here this afternoon. And I don't know if by tomorrow I remember the sermon. I mean, I'm enjoying it. It's not penetrating to my heart. I'm kind of okay with that. Or am I more like the fabulous four? This plucky squad of four friends who say, can't get to Jesus, I'll tear the roof off. That, 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 are you the kind of person that if you came and that door was locked, would you kick the door in? And if you couldn't kick it in, would you go on the roof and smash a hole in the roof? We're speaking figuratively here. But someone who longs for Jesus, wild horses can't keep them away. They'll do anything to meet Jesus, to be in his presence, to know him, to take him in their arms, and that he takes us in his arms, and that we know we're safe. This is God. This is Lord. This is Savior. This is who I need. And don't don't stand in my way. Don't let anything get in the way of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, we're about to see what happens to those who have that kind of faith, who can't stay away from Jesus. And that's our second point. Jesus looks at that paralytic now on the floor, and he says, son. He uses a word in Greek that's, that's endearing and very very personal. You can imagine the four who are looking through the hole in the roof. They're all going, yes, it's going to be good. This is a term of endearment. And Jesus is going to help out our, our paralytic friend. Just listen. Just watch. And then Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Say what? He's a paralytic. Ah, sins, that, that has to be dealt with. He's paralyzed. Why not first things first, let's let's deal with the paralysis. Let's get him up. Then we can talk also about the forgiveness of sins. Now, truth be told, we, we don't know what the four are thinking or the paralytic man either. But what we do see is that Jesus saw their faith. And later on in verse 8, Jesus could look in the hearts of the scribes as well. So he's God. He can look in the heart. He knows exactly what the five are thinking. And you know what, brothers and sisters, what he saw was faith. And maybe that faith was a little more preoccupied with healing. But the point of faith is that you look at Jesus. Faith is, I believe that you will meet all my needs, all my hopes, all my dreams, not just now, but for eternity. Even if the healing was primarily on their minds, there was this little mustard seed of faith also in the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the the mother hen who gathers her chicks under her wings. He sees that germ of faith in these men and he pulls them on, pulls them to him, and says, I'm going to open your eyes. I'm going to open your hearts and reveal to you 
what you need more than anything else, and that is the forgiveness of sins. Paralysis, we can talk about that later. Health issues, we can talk about later. But you need to know that I can give you forgiveness of sins. Indeed, brothers and sisters, we should understand that health issues, like for this paralyzed man, to heal, that's not the be-all and end-all. So he gets healed. He lives another 60 years, robust, healthy life, and then he dies as a sinner. Darkness, fire. What good is healing if you don't have the most important thing of all, being washed in the blood of Jesus Christ? The question that I have for you at this moment is that when you heard Jesus say, Son, your sins are forgiven. Did that send a shiver down your spine? Did it give you goosebumps? Did you say forgiveness of sins given to those who only have a mustard seed of faith? Hallelujah! Every person who is the slightest bit self-aware and knows that, that we're sinners and how sinners break our relationship with God, there is no sweeter word than the forgiveness of sins. And that's why God said to his people in Isaiah 1 verse 18, people who are going into Babylonian exile, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Doesn't that make your heart skip a beat? And do you remember when the angel came to Joseph in Matthew 1 and said, Mary is going to have a son, this virgin will have a son. Then the angel specifically charged Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's why the Son of God came into this world. That's what Jesus is all about. To get, forgive his people their sins. And that's why the, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee who went to the temple to pray in, in Luke 18 touches every heart in the deepest way. Tax collector wouldn't go into the temple. Didn't even dare look up into heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That man, he went home. His sins were forgiven. As we said, anyone who is honest and truthful to himself or herself will know that our sins is our biggest problem. It's our disease. It's what will get us into everlasting darkness and the, the lake of fire, there's nothing more sweet than to hear your sins are forgiven. Cast into the depths of the sea, and you're made as white as wool and pure as snow. Now, we read the scribes' reaction in verse 7, where they said in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, the last line of their thought who can forgive sins but God alone is 100% right. Only God can forgive sin. 
And that, that's because ultimately all sin is against God. David makes it very clear in Psalm 51 when he's talking about his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. When, when David writes Psalm 51, and that's a, a prayer, of course, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He hurt Bathsheba. He hurt Uriah. He hurt his people. He hurt himself. He hurt his family. But D David says, my sin is against you, God. Because you created me in your image. You created man to have fellowship, to live in, 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 in glorious friendship together. And my sin is like slapping you in the face. Against you, you only have I sinned. So when the, the scribes are thinking this and they're challenging Jesus and saying, only God can forgive sins, how does Jesus react? Does he, does he backpedal a bit and say, wow, what I meant to say is that in the name of God, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't do that. What he's saying is, I forgive your sins. And he says that because he is God. The sins of that paralytic are sins against Jesus Christ as the Son of God, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Only Jesus can forgive. And ultimately, of course, we're about to learn that he can forgive sin because he's going to die for sinners on the cross of Golgotha. It is knowing this that allows every sinner to courageously and with full comfort and hope come to Jesus Rip the roof off the house if you have to. Get to Jesus. Find him. Know him. Get him in your arms. He will wash away all your sins. And that's proven in our final point where Jesus heals the paralytic. It's clear from verse 8 that Jesus Christ not only knew what the scribes were thinking, but he was sensing their increased hostility, which would climax eventually in them killing him, crucifying him on the cross. Therefore, Jesus says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk? Bit of a trick question. Isn't it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Because who's going to prove whether you actually can do it or not? You can't see it. But it's hard to say, you know, rise, take up your cot, and walk, because you're going to see pretty quickly whether Jesus can actually do that or not. But Jesus Christ gets around any kind of dilemma by saying in verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. More than anything else, Jesus Christ wanted the crowd, and that includes the scribes, he wanted them to know that he is God. And that as God, he has the right and the ability to forgive sins. So he says, I will prove to you that I'm God. He says to the paralytic, get up, take your cot, and go home. And we read in verse 12, and he rolls and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all. The paralytic is healed 
in a split second, paralysis is completely gone. And thereby, Jesus proves that he is God. Although some might question that and say, you know, there are other people in history who are able to do miracles. Think of the magicians in Egypt in the time of the Exodus. But you can't compare that to the miracles of Jesus Christ. They stand alone. When Jesus does a, a miracle, it's instantaneous. It's flawless. It never fails. And it is, it'll take your breath away. You, you wouldn't dream that this is possible. Take an example in Mark 4, verse 41, where Jairus' daughter has just died. And Jesus continues to go to the house. And he sits there with this little dead girl. And he says, Talitha, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. You see what Jesus did? He reached with his hand through, through death with all its sting and its power. And he took that dead girl, brought her back to life, and gave it back, gave her back to her dad. Another example is just a, a chapter earlier where Jesus walks out, or he's in the boat with the disciples in the raging sea. And he woke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Who can do that by God? But God, there's a raging storm. The boat's going to sink. And Jesus says, stop. And the, and the water is as smooth as glass. It's like crystal. This is God. This is the creator. The person who says to the paralyzed man, rise, is the same person who once said, let there be light. And there was light. The person who says to the paralytic, rise, is the person who said, let there be dry land, and the whole globe shook, and out of the water rose continents and, and islands and, and mountains. Jesus is God. He's the creator. Read that in John 1. The word made flesh. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He is almighty God. He has the power, the right to forgive sins. Indeed, he says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Nobody called Jesus the Son of Man except Jesus himself. That's a self-designation. And he loved that term. Partly it goes back to Daniel 7, where the Son of Man receives all authority from Almighty God. But there's something also about the Son of Man that people didn't click with, that this is actually a term that hides his identity. And you notice in chapter 1 how often Jesus says, don't tell people who I am. Why would Jesus do that? Because he doesn't spoon feed people. He challenges people. said, are you listening to me? Are you seeing what I'm doing? Do you not know who I am? God, become man, Emmanuel, your Lord and your Savior. You need to believe in me. Don't sit on any fence. Don't, don't sit there with your mouth open watching me. You got to launch. You got to commit. You got to know me as Lord and Savior. And it brings us back to the question that Jesus said, which is easier to forgive sins or to heal the paralytic? Think about this, brothers and sisters. When Jesus said to the, to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. In effect, what Jesus was doing was 
taking that man's sins and putting them on himself. That's what he does with every sinner. That's what he does with every one of us when we come to him in faith and ask for the forgiveness of sins. All our sins are put on him. We just mentioned that Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount talked about adultery and murder, you know, calling your brother an idiot or, or looking at a woman or a man with, with lust in, in, in your heart. Who hasn't done those things? And if you say, I didn't, I'll call you a liar. Because all sin, all break the commandments. When Jesus went to the cross, he was innocent, he was righteous, but he was nailed there as an idolater, as an adulterer, as a murderer, as a blasphemer. He took all our sins upon himself and he paid for it. Was it easy? He said on the night before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And hear him on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Three hours of darkness brought to the open doors of hell. Easy? Not a chance. Most horrible experience that anyone has ever experienced. And he did it as a righteous, holy, obedient son of God. We said that sin hurts God. God takes the double hurt. He's hurt by sin. God also takes the hurt of the punishment for sin. As Jesus Christ is God. As God he hung on the cross, God and man, to pay for all our sins, that those sins would be trampled underfoot, thrown into the depths of the sea, never to be held against us again. Not easy for God, but that's the depth of his love and his grace. And so easy for us. We, we just mentioned Jairus, the synagogue ruler whose daughter Jesus raised from the dead. Before Jesus raised that little girl, the father's devastated. He says, it's over. And Jesus says, Jairus, just believe. That's all that's asked of us. Just believe to have faith in Jesus Christ. He did the hard stuff. He did the heavy lifting. He paid for our sins. Believe in him. Your sins are gone. You are counted righteous before God. When the paralytic rose from his cot, picked it up and walked off, probably, probably with his four amazing friends, we read about the crowd. They were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Fine. Nice. Now commit. Now launch. Don't just say, Oh, this is amazing. We never saw anything like this. No, go to Jesus. Grab him, hold him. Ask that your sins too be put on him and that he pays for them. You need to come to Jesus, each and every one of us. We need to come to Jesus and say, you're my Lord and you are my Savior. We need to do that. And the odd person might say, that's starting to sound a little Arminian to me, oh, man, listen to the scripture. 
How often didn't Jesus basically said, don't, don't, don't sit on a fence, believe in me? Even back in Deuteronomy 30, when Moses is about to die and the people of Israel are going to enter the promised land, he said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and the length of days that you may dwell in the land the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Those words were so pointed back then, around 1400 BC. They were relevant when Jesus Christ was talking to the crowd and it's relevant for us today. We're set before time and eternity. God puts before us life and death. Which shall you choose? Choose life. Embrace Jesus. Know him as your Lord and your Savior. And that there is nothing sweeter to you than to see your sins vanish. Like vapor on a winter's day. All in the blood of Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, with the forgiveness of sins, our Lord Jesus Christ promises us everything we need for body and soul and life and death. Jesus did not ignore the ailments of the people in his day. He healed the sick. He even raised dead people. He cared for our, our physical human condition. And he said, one day, it's going to be soon enough. I will wipe away the tears from your eyes. All pain, sorrow, death will be gone. No more cancer. No more heart disease. No more Alzheimer's. No ailment whatsoever. But a world where God's people, people washed in, in the blood and spirit of Jesus Christ, will live forever in health and strength to the glory of God. Amen.